You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. It's Tuesday, November 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. China's zero-COVID policies is causing a wave of protests that are getting hard to ignore. Recent protests all have their own reasons for sparking, but the underlying issue seems to revolve around the policy, which has seen residents unable to access food, medicine, and medical care in some cases. Some changes have been made to the zero-COVID policy, but frustrations have boiled over. Ellen Ionis, foreign affairs reporter at Vox, joins us for what to know. Next, the money transfer service Zelle saw some 1.8 billion transactions in 2021 that totaled $490 billion. Now, the banks behind Zelle are standardizing the methods with which to reimburse scammed customers. Popular scams include messages that seem to come from customer support and tricks users into sending money into what appears to be your own account, but it's linked to a fraudulent one. David Benoit, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, restaurants are getting a small reprieve from chicken. As they have been battered by high inflation and rising labor and operational costs, chicken has begun to drop in price. Prices for chicken breasts have dropped about 70% since the first week of June. Patrick Thomas, reporter of the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how dropping poultry prices will hopefully be giving you a break soon. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Joining us now is Ellen Ionis, foreign affairs and politics reporter at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Ellen. Glad to be here. Let's talk about the waves of protests that we're seeing in China right now. It's not something you usually see considering how uh, everything works over there. We're seeing a lot of people protesting the COVID policy, the zero COVID policy that, you know, that causes a lot of shutdowns, a lot of people to quarantine and all that. We're seeing some people even demand that President Xi Jinping resign, although that probably will not happen. So, uh, Ellen, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing, because there's a few different things that have happened. They're all kind of underpinned by the zero COVID policy, people's frustration with it. So I want to just first off say that it's not that necessarily that protest is 
unprecedented in Xi Jinping's China. I mean, a lot of people uh, push back against government policies, especially online, and people have really developed creative and interesting ways to do that online. And people certainly do protest. I think what's so interesting is to see people being so outspoken, so vocal, and to see that really spill into the streets and to see things happen in many different places at the same time is what's very, very interesting to me from an outside perspective. And so I think what you could say about the protests that we're seeing in Shanghai, Beijing, Chengdu, in Urumqi, they are related to the COVID-19 lockdowns, Mm -hmm. zero COVID policy, but they're all seen sort of through their different particular lenses that are unique to the area or the particular concerns of the people who are going out and doing this very brave thing. So they're related, but they're not exactly the same, if that makes sense. No, totally. Uh, But a lot of it, right, uh, due to these um, zero COVID lockdowns, a lot of it has to do with the access to food and access to resources as things are being shut down for them and that, you know, people have to quarantine, as you mentioned, in different regions, obviously. So we're seeing things happening with the ethnic minority there, the Uyghurs. We saw something in a Foxconn plant uh, where they were making iPhones. And then uh, there was another uh, issue as well. But, you know, a lot of it, like I said, a lot of it has to do with access to food and supplies and, and all that as these COVID policies keep shutting things down. To put a little bit of background on the protest in Urumqi in the capital of Xinjiang, which is the Uyghurs territory where they their ethnic homeland, there have been COVID protocols in place there for about 100 days, which is a really long time since August. And that, according to a Uyghur scholar that I spoke with who's now living in the UK, you know, this has caused people to be afraid that they're going to starve to death. They can't make money um, in order to buy like daily necessities. And so then kind of what kicked off protests late during the weekend this weekend was an apartment fire in Urumqi, which the government's been pretty circumspect about how many people were killed, who those people were. But from what we're seeing from your activists and scholars, a lot of those people were ethnic minorities. And it's possible that they were prevented from leaving the apartments and from getting access to help and emergency services because of these COVID lockdowns. So there have been really significant problems with the with the lockdowns in Urumqi and in other parts of Xinjiang. And then this is these very tragic and preventable or probably preventable deaths were the last straw that really pushed things over the edge. On the politics side of things, as I mentioned, you know, some people were calling for President Xi to resign. That's not going to happen. The Communist Party there is so strong and, and you know, he has an iron mm-hmm. grip on things there. So that, that that's not going to happen. But why have they maintained this zero COVID policy for so long? I mean, largely in the rest of the world, it seems like many have moved on and, and, and at least eased a lot of restrictions. I know that they've recently made a few changes to that policy, but it's still holding very, very strong for now. You're right. You know, that's part of the frustration is people in China are seeing that there's a firewall, but there's not people still have access to information and that they're seeing in other parts of the world. People are learning to live with COVID and are not dealing with these harmful and draconian restrictions. And part of that is this is a signature policy for Xi Jinping. And it was pretty effective in the early days of COVID. As far as we know, of course, it's very hard to get definite 
uh, numerical data from China, but it was pretty effective at keeping cases down. Now that doesn't seem to be uh, the case as cases rise in Beijing and people are seeing that the rest of the world is learning to live with COVID. Why are we not? And that's because this is supposed to be a, a signature policy of presidency. And it's very hard for an autocrat to give that up. And I don't want to make a direct comparison, but in terms of the Great Leap Forward and other policies under Mao's China, like he, there were these signature policies that were very, very harmful, but it was very important to keep the facade going in order to have these signature policies right. that would define the leadership. Ellen Ionis, foreign affairs and politics reporter at Vox, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. A certain set of scam that has become pretty prevalent, which is essentially people getting tricked into sending money where they think it's going to themselves and it's going somewhere else, or they think it's going to one place and it's kind of rerouted to somewhere else. Joining us now is David Benoit, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, David. Of course. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about uh, something uh, interesting concerning Zelle. So this is a peer-to-peer money payment network that uh, I know a lot of people are probably familiar with. If you have Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, it's one of the services that they offer to their customers. You know, something similar to like a Venmo, right? This is all in the same line of type of things. But these banks right now are getting together to devise a plan to compensate customers who might fall victim to scams on the Zelle payment network right now. And, you know, we've seen a sharp rise in people reporting this stuff recently. So now they're getting together to make sure there's this standardized way for people to get their money back. So, David, help us uh, walk through some of this a little bit. What are we seeing? So you're right. There's been this rise in fraud across Zelle. There's, there's been a huge rise in the use of Zelle. And with that comes rising fraud across lots of peer-to-peer networks. And what the banks have come under some pressure to try to fix this. And so what we're reporting is that they are planning some new rules for the people who use the banks who use Zelle. And it will impact a certain set of scam that has become pretty prevalent, which is essentially people getting tricked into sending money where they think it's going to themselves and it's going somewhere else. Or they think it's going to one place and it's kind of rerouted to somewhere else. Yeah. And that's the tricky part, right? Uh, Sometimes these scams are are rooted in something that looks completely plausible. So, you know, to your point, right, of how much Zelle is being used right now, they recorded some 1.8 billion transactions in 2021, which totaled $490 billion. This is more than double what was going on pre-pandemic. So, I I mean, it's getting a lot of use. And help us explain a little bit more on this scam, because it's coming in the form of like, hey, this is customer support. You know, you need to send money back to your own account, but that account's been linked to, uh, your phone number's been linked to another account. It's all, uh, you know, they get very crafty with it. Scammers have gotten really good at tricking people, especially using these online payment systems because it's also instantaneous. So you're right. So what happens is a really good example of this is uh, you get a note that you think is from your bank's customer support saying, hey, we think there's an instance of fraud. Can you log in via this link and, and check it out? And you wind up in this discussion with a person who says, all right, well, here's how we're going to fix it. You're going to sell yourself money and we're going to prove that it's working or isn't working. But you're right. What happens is your phone number has been hijacked or your email has been taken over and it's going to a different account. So you might think you're sending it to your own phone number, but it's sending it to someone else's account who's then taking your money. 
in the past, the banks have said, that's not on us. You authorized the money. You sent the money. Banks are forced by the law to pay you back if your money is stolen from you, if someone gets access to your account and does an unauthorized transaction. But the banks have really been tough about, well, if you authorized it, if you said yes, if I can see that you you hit yes on that, we're not going to give you back your money. And what we're reporting is the banks are now saying, okay, in instances of this, where it looks like you're sending your money someplace and it goes somewhere different and you've been tricked, we agree that you're going to get your money back. And actually, we're going to send the money back through the banking system too. So if I'm a Chase customer and my money goes to a scammer who has an account at, say, Bank of America, Bank of America is going to refund Chase. Chase is going to refund me. Yeah. And that's the important part of this. So Zelle, you know, thankfully, right, they said that scams really only take up a a tiny slice of this 0.1%, which is great. But uh, as I mentioned, you know, I I mentioned Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo. Zelle is owned by like seven owner banks. So that's an important distinction, right? Uh, They play with money back and forth there. So they're making this uh, a standardized rule so that everybody, they know everybody's going to make their money back at least. Right. So this is a big selling point for the banks. Banks, The banks are the ones who created Zelle in order to compete against Venmo, which kind of came out of nowhere on them. They did this a few years ago. It has skyrocketed in popularity, partly because they have linked it to all of the biggest banks. So you're right. Seven banks own Zelle and create the rules. And then there's a network of, I think they say 1,700 banks that participate in Zelle. And what, what we're reporting is the seven banks that own it have pretty much agreed to the, make these rule changes. And they're sort of tinkering a little bit. And they'll announce them next year. And when they announce them, then the other 1,700 banks have to agree to these terms, which would make it really hard for fraud to exist inside Zelle, or at least this fraud. And if they don't, if the banks don't agree, then they'll get pretty much kicked out of the out of using the service. I mean, that, that's all good news, right? It, it helps um, kind of boost the customer trust in Zelle, right? If you know you're, everybody's going to be safe from these scams and all that, I mean, that's, that's great. It's great that they're getting together for all of this. And as I mentioned, you know, if you have one of those banks, they're, they're offering you this service. So by and large, I bet you a lot of people uh, are very familiar with this one. Uh, now, they did say some of the new rules won't extend to customers seeking refunds for goods and services that they say they didn't receive. So there's still a few things that, you know, they're not going to uh, allow you to claim was a scam and, and kind of get your money back that way. There is still definitely a like buyer beware note here. Consumers still have to be very careful about using Zelle if you're dealing with someone you don't know. And the banks are going to say it's on the consumer, just like it's on the consumer to use your cash carefully. It's on the consumer to use Zelle carefully. So if you're trying to buy a concert ticket from someone or you're trying to make some sort of uh, deal, they, they actually they often use an example of buying a puppy. If someone offers you a puppy from their litter of puppies and you, you send them money via Zelle and you never get the puppy, that's not on the bank. That's not the fraud we're talking about here. You have to still be very careful. All right. Well, these uh, rules, uh, new rules are supposed to be put in place early next year. We'll see. Uh, hopefully a lot of people avoid the scams first off. And then, uh, you know, if they do get caught up in one, they can get their money back. David Benoit, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, 
offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing. And of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Really just kind of hurt the supply of chicken. You had problems getting employees into the plants and you had the high grain prices at a time of high demand, and all of those kind of things rose prices. Joining us now is Patrick Thomas, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me. Well, what we're seeing right now when it comes to uh, the restaurants out there, they're finally starting to get a little bit of a reprieve from chicken prices. Uh, You know, for a long time, we had seen escalating costs for restaurants. Now we're seeing the prices for chicken breasts specifically plunge about 70%. Um, So uh, obviously, they never kind of stopped doing their promotions for chicken meals and whatnot. It's one of their biggest draws, but at least now we're starting to see those prices drop and really help them out when they're in a pinch. So Patrick, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing with these chicken prices. You know, restaurants, I mean, they've been seeing escalating costs for months, um, if not a year, just with broader inflation and all their costs have been going up. And chicken kind of in its commodity cycle had been, along with various other meats, had been going through the roof in terms of prices on it. Um, we've seen the same in you know, other categories, such as beef and pork, really from kind of a variety of different factors, you know, even going all the way back to the kind of the geopolitical tensions and the war in Ukraine and grain prices had skyrocketed. And, and that had been part of the reason going all the way back to the pandemic uh, a couple of years ago, when you saw just kind of this big demand for many of the proteins and you had either workers out sick or you had labor, the kind of the tight labor market in the last year and a half really just kind of hurt the supply of chicken. You had problems employee, getting employees into the plants and you had the high grain prices at a time of high demand and all of those kind of things rose prices. There was also an added kind of interesting nugget, no pun intended, in chicken <laughs> of the hatch of what's called hatchability. It's kind of a bit of a wonkier thing that's unique to chicken. And that's, well, the kind of the rate of chicks that are hatched by poultry companies. You know, you have kind of a certain amount of chicks that are produced and sent to the farmer, the independent farmers or the contracted farmers that grow the chicks and the companies come and pick them back up. For a while, you had a problem, kind of a wide problem in the industry of, of really hatching enough chicks. Obviously, we heard a lot about the avian flu and flocks having to be culled because of that so we can it wouldn't keep spreading. But the hatchability problem was one that I had not heard of. That one's a little less known. Um, the bird flu, the avian influenza, the technical term, like has been a huge impact on turkey and egg prices. Chicken has been a little bit different. You've had kind of this lingering problem that coupled with grain prices and plant staffing and the demand had just driven 
chicken breast prices, the boneless, skinless breast prices, kind of the benchmark up to these astronomical record high prices. And it, it just, it had like Tyson Foods switched breeds to an older breed of, of chicken that had used before. You had these companies just kind of tweaking what breeds of chickens they were using for broilers, which is the ones that are used for meat. And the industry had basically over the last couple of months kind of figured itself out. Companies like Tyson had been working to increase their the amount of birds they were producing to the capacity levels they have, which involves not only hatchability, but being more efficient at their plants, improving their supply chain. Pilgrims have made strides in hatchability as well. Kind of the whole industry kind of got itself together a little bit there. Plant staffing has also improved broadly with wage increases and more benefits. So anyway, all of this kind of things combine to take down the price of chicken, and that has helped restaurants and has given them some relief yeah. at a time when price, when other inflation is still pretty high. Yeah, some relief is the critical thing there, right? Uh, you know, there's the prices of grain, transportation, labor costs, all that stuff that you were mentioning. That still remains pretty elevated. So it's just the price of chicken because supplies have gotten better there. So still a pretty tough time. And you mentioned too in the article, you know, for, for these restaurants, they really still haven't stopped promoting chicken. I mean, it's, you know, one of their big sellers, I think, promotions of chicken value meal deals were up 160% very recently. So those promotions have been ongoing as, you know, we know the chicken sandwich wars, things like that. Everybody's still promoting those specific products. You're absolutely right. Wingstop, restaurant brands, Popeyes, uh, all promoting the new chicken sandwich and wing deals, really trying to keep customers coming to their restaurants. I think those promotions are key during potential economic downturn too. I mean, Part of this is you want to keep that demand going. Some of the things that the poultry processors were have said, and one of the reasons that demand is a little flat. So I think part of this promotion also, you know, they want to keep promoting these chicken items to keep the customers coming. And declining commodity chicken prices does give them a little relief. And they've been telling investors that that our costs are coming down at least at least in this one area. So that's been good news for them. Well, we'll see how this progresses. We'll see if we notice the changes in some of those prices uh, there for the consumers and, uh, you know, maybe even uh, beyond restaurants as well. Maybe in our grocery stores, maybe we'll start noticing some of those price differences. Patrick Thomas, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 